Welcome everybody to this final session of the Atlantic Literary and Storytelling Festival. We're excited to be joined by Professor and Atlantic Fellow for Equity and Brain Health, Cindy Weinstein, who collaborated with Dr. Bruce Miller to write a deeply personal narrative which follows the decades-long journey to come to terms with her father's dementia and death as both a daughter and in her capacity as an academic. I would also love to introduce Professor Brian Lawler, Professor of Old Age Psychiatry at Trinity College Dublin and Deputy Executive Director of the Global Brain Health Institute. Brian has spent over 30 years developing services and delivering care to people with dementia and understands the themes of Cindy and Bruce's book very well. And wonderfully, we have him here to hold this space and be in conversation with Cindy around her and Bruce's work. Brian, thank you so much for joining us and for helping us explore with Cindy her work. And I will hand over to you to introduce Cindy and open the conversation. So, Brian, if I can hand to you. Thanks, Gemma. It's just wonderful to be here. Welcome to everybody. It's such a great pleasure to introduce Cindy Weinstein. Cindy is the Eli and Edith Broad Professor of American Literature at California Institute of Technology, and she's a Senior Atlantic Fellow at Global Brain Health Institute. As Gemma was saying, we're here to have a conversation with Cindy about her book called Finding the Right Words, which she wrote in collaboration with Bruce Miller, who's co-director of the Global Brain Health Institute and director of the Memory and Aging Center at UCSF and an expert in the area of dementia. Finding the Right Words is essentially about Cindy's father, Jerry Weinstein's young onset Alzheimer's disease. But I think as you'll find in this conversation that we're going to have with Cindy, it's a book with many layers, and I would say with many meanings. First of all, let's hear from Cindy as she is going to read an excerpt from her book, just to set the scene for us and to help us start the conversation. So over to you, Cindy. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Gemma. It's just an honor to be having this conversation. I am going to read from a chapter that's called Call Me Ahab. That is obviously a riff on the opening words of Moby Dick, Call Me Ishmael. It's a chapter about word finding, and this is a part of the chapter where it's really explicitly about my father and I trying to find a word. I think I was dreaming in Berkeley, that's where I went to graduate school, and only woke up to reality when I was with my dad, and then finally when I wasn't. Case in point, going with him to a supermarket in Berkeley on one of his and my mom's last visits to California. This visit was the first time that I witnessed my dad not knowing who my mom was. When we walked to the supermarket, he asked me with a combination of fright and curiosity, who is that woman in the house? Being asked this question by my father made writing two pages a day, which is what I did to get my dissertation done, feel like a piece of cake. It was a beautiful spring day in Berkeley, and that evening we were going to make dinner at my house. Dad wanted a salad with his chicken. This seemed like a rather straightforward proposition until we got closer to the market, and Dad realized he wanted something very specific in his salad, but couldn't remember what it was. I was always good with words having been trained in the arts of playing Scrabble at a very young age with a very competitive mother, and then spending hours on the New York Times crossword puzzle as a college student pre-Google, I was therefore confident that I could help dad get to the right word with little fuss. Cocky, 
rational me went into problem-solving mode. Initially, I thought he wanted a certain kind of lettuce and not just iceberg. We were in Berkeley, after all, and Dad had succumbed to the charms of the gourmet ghetto with its gorgeous produce and cheese varieties. Arugula? No. Red leaf? No. He made it clear that it wasn't lettuce that he wanted, but it was something in the salad. Goat cheese? No. Tomatoes? No. Chickpeas? No. Sprouts? No. I was starting to get a little antsy myself as I realized I wasn't hitting my mark. Dad picked up his pace as if speed would help him find the word more quickly, as if the word were running away from him and walking faster would help him catch it. I suggested that we might be able to figure out what it was that he wanted once we got to the market and we could go through the aisles. That calmed him and me down for a bit, and then we entered the market. For some reason, I was set on the idea that it was chickpeas that he wanted, but he just wasn't connecting the word to the thing. Thus, I gently directed us toward the beans. Bad move. He got angry not only because he didn't want chickpeas, but also because he realized that I was behaving as if I thought he didn't know what the word chickpea referred to. He was right to be angry, and I was right to treat him like a child because he was one sort of. I now see his anger as a good thing. He was angry that I was treating him like a child and he was healthy enough to know it. As the disease progressed, I came to miss that anger because it had confirmed for me that some structures remained in place. He was still my father and I his child. Absent the anger that was gone, he was gone too and so was I. I regrouped us and we walked toward the produce aisle he told me it wasn't anything like that, as in nothing refrigerated. What the fuck was it? Capers? I didn't think he liked capers, but the past was pretty irrelevant, as I also thought he knew the woman to whom he had been married for over 30 years. At a certain point, my dad's desperation became my own. I couldn't find the word, the thing, who cared which. No longer were we walking through the various aisles, which was another one of my initial strategies, saunter through the aisle and maybe he'll see what he wants and that will be that. It was all about finding whatever it was that we were looking for, our white whale. Who knew it was croutons? The two of us began a frantic search through the aisles. With fear and hope, I watched my dad looking at the various cans and boxes of stuff on the shelves, his expression turning from hope to disappointment to sadness and back again with each swift rejection of not seeing the thing he could not name. I decided it would be worse for me to keep guessing, so I shut my mouth and just kept him company on his heartbreaking journey through the supermarket. Eventually, we found the croutons. His face lit up. He was so incredibly happy. I could have cried for joy myself. It was over. The relief was physical. Our hunt through the oceans of salad paraphernalia was over. We could go home, make the damn salad, and eat. Until my dad decided that he wanted to rent a movie. I'll cut to the chase and tell you it was Ferris Bueller's day off, but my dad didn't couldn't find the words. And so we started all over again. That's the excerpt. Well, Cindy, that's a wonderful excerpt. And for me, working with people with dementia for so many years, it just captures beautifully this frustration that the person has with word finding 
particularly with this language prominent form of dementia that your father, Jerry, had. Uh, he's searching for solutions. You're searching for solutions. As I say, the frustration, despair, but then the joy at the end of it all, but then starting again. So beautifully described. Jerry, your father, he developed young onset Alzheimer's disease at the age of 58, and you were around 25 at the time, I think, and you were just starting off in grad school in beautiful Berkeley. I mean, your dream come true. Just bring us back there to those times. As I read the book, you were living in two parallel universes of dimensions. You had your graduate work, your love, literature, you referred to the whale there, to Moby Dick, and then you had your father's illness. So tell us a little bit about what was going on for you and in your head at the time. Sure. I should say that the diagnosis of Alzheimer's for my father at 58 took place when I was 25, and yet he definitely was exhibiting symptoms prior to that. And my mother was hoping that she wouldn't have to tell me he was sick, that somehow I wouldn't know, because she was worried that I wouldn't be able to finish my PhD at Berkeley. And I had loved reading as a young person and really wanted to do that for the rest of my life. I didn't realize that being a professor also involved doing a lot of writing as well, and that was the harder part. But Berkeley quickly cured me of that naivete. I was extremely close to my father, and I talk a lot about that in the book. And I was so excited to leave the East Coast and go to California. And I remember visiting the campus. My mom came out with me. I was deciding between Berkeley and Columbia at the time. And it was one of these magnificent California days and people were sitting outside reading. And I thought to myself, how does anyone get any work done here? But I decided to go to Berkeley for graduate school and my father seemed fine at the time. His symptoms started to be evident in phone calls, which was our primary mode of communication, although I did write him a lot of letters as well, and I'm really glad I did. And as he started getting sick, and I think the first presentation of it was depression, but we thought he had a lot of reasons to be depressed. He had sold a business that he had owned for many years. He retired. He left New Jersey for Florida. There were all these huge changes in his life. And we're talking about the 80s. And we just sort of chalked it up to dad's just having a hard time letting go of the life he knew for so long and occupying a new life, which he was very excited to do. But then the depression struck. And I basically occupied two different universes during this time. I would read during the day and study and write my papers. And as my father's illness became more and more traumatizing, both to him and our entire family, I cordoned off in my mind my experience of loving reading and being at Berkeley from my experience of being devastated at his illness. And so it was this compartmentalization that I think was disastrous <laughs> in terms of my emotional health. It was very effective in terms of allowing me to do what I wanted to do at Berkeley. But I talk in the book about the fact that there was hell to pay later on down the line. So I guess you got stuck in the grief and in the trauma at the time. You weren't able to work it through. 
there was a certain type of coping style. I mean, you talked about the two parallel universes and compartmentalization. So there were two parts. There was the part where you kind of locked things out, but then there was a, a part where you kind of immersed yourself in the literature. And how did that creative process of the literature help you at that time, or did it help you? It definitely helped me, as Brian indicated, and as the excerpt I read suggests, Moby Dick has been a text that has kept me company for a very long time. I read it for the first time in high school when I was 16 and never recovered. There was a way in which literature, which is so often about suffering and grief and loss, became a container for me. It was a container both for my grief and a container to keep it at bay. So when I read Moby Dick, for example, and read about Ahab's loss and sadness and grief, I got it in a really frightening way because the literary critic in me knew, like, you're not supposed to identify with this madman. (gasps) Really, you're supposed to identify with Ishmael. And I would sort of go back and forth, like the critic in me knew where my mind was supposed to go, but the suffering daughter in me knew what was attracting me to this crazy character. It wasn't just Moby Dick, but just so many works of literature are imbued with a sense of loss and sadness. So I poured my own into what I was reading. One of the chapters is, yes, you see, you start with Call Me Ahab, and it's almost like, you know, Ahab was mentally and physically scarred by Moby Dick, and you were almost mentally and physically scarred by what happened to your father, the Alzheimer's, that your father had. There was a sublimation from your involvement in the literature, but it didn't release you from the grief. But writing this book with Bruce Miller, did that release you in any way? Definitely. I had never thought of myself as a writer even though I'd written a bunch of books, <laughs> literary criticism. And I remember when I got into GBHI, I was so excited. And Bruce took me around the Sandler building. And the first person he introduced me to was Howie Rosen. And Bruce called me a writer. And I remember like, what? I'm an English professor. I'm not a writer. But then I am. And what I realized is that my love for stories impelled me to want to write my own and to write this story about my father and to write it with Bruce. His response to the excerpt that I read was to talk about the neurology behind word finding and why my father might have had such a hard time accessing the word crouton. He had a hard time accessing a bunch of words, but the unusualness of the word crouton made it even harder for him to get to. Definitely in telling the story of my father's illness, my relationship to it, the way that other stories informed how I was going to tell the story was really empowering and at a certain point became liberating. I still feel grief, feel sadness, but I'm liberated from the stuckness of it. I mean, there were so many moments along the way that were valuable when Bruce told me that my father in the 80s, if you had Alzheimer's, you just had Alzheimer's. Bruce told me my father had early onset Alzheimer's with the logopenic variant. And that was the start of the story because I knew then what my father actually had. 
telling stories about my father, sad stories, and then really funny stories as well. There's a book called Brain on Fire. I think I had like a fever in my brain. It was like 103 or something for a really long time. And then I wrote the book and now it's (laughs) 90.6. One of the best moments in writing the book was Bruce said, this is all good, Cindy, but you don't have a narrative and it's a bunch of anecdotes and what's holding the whole thing together. And he said to me, the memory chapter shouldn't come first. Let's think about putting it last, which was a revelation to me because when I first started in the program, I just thought Alzheimer's was about memory. And now I know that it's about so much more and there's so many different kinds of dementia and memory isn't even always an issue with other different kinds of dementia. So we switch things around And the last chapter of the book is me remembering my healthy father, just doing a catalog of all these wonderful things that his sickness had prevented me from remembering. It was too hard for me to remember the happy stuff. I didn't trust myself with it. So that was just wonderful to be able to tell these stories of our childhood and when my dad wasn't sick. That was hugely salvific. It was really beneficial. Sounds like it's extraordinarily healing for you. By the time you got to the end of the book, I think being able to tell those happy stories, those happy memories, right, working through the grief and almost to acceptance. There's a feeling of that when you read the book. I wanted to talk a little bit about the structure of the book because the structure is unusual in that in the way you juxtapose your story and then Bruce Miller's reflection. He's a behavioral neurologist, he's an academic, he's a brain scientist, and he gives extraordinary clear reflections on what was going on for Jerry, for your father at the time. And you found that knowledge and awareness of really, that knowledge really helped you a lot. Right. As the book develops, the conversations between you and Bruce Miller become very connected. Your story, his story. To my mind, there's a lot of healing, there's a lot of empathy, there's a lot of crosstalk. As the book goes to that last chapter, which is very positive and hopeful. One of the biggest challenges of the book was to figure out the structure. It's unusual to have a memoir written by two people, especially when one of the persons writing it doesn't even know the person about whom the book is, right? (laughs) So Bruce only knows my father through the stories that I told Bruce about my dad. And Bruce's many things, including an amazing writer and a wonderful listener and an empath extraordinaire. I had a vision of the book that I wanted it to be two voices and not just mine, that I wanted to tell the story of my father from the point of view of a daughter and an English professor, but I wanted it to be more than that. I wanted it to give readers knowledge about neurology and the science because I wanted to empower readers with the words so that when they go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, there's a problem with the cortex or it's the temporal parietal lobe where we see this diminution, those words, I think, can be so scary 
And I think doctors have so much power that often patients just listen and don't ask questions. And so I wanted to empower readers with this information. I wanted to have images of the brain in the book, pictures of PET scans, so that the first time a family goes to the doctor, it's not the first time that they've seen something like that. And I couldn't write that myself. I needed to find a neurologist who would be willing to share their knowledge And so it took me a long time to find Bruce. I also needed to study neurology at least for a year so that I could, in my own discussions, set the table for Bruce so that he could swoop in and then explain the science. The book is a conversation between the two of us. I haven't seen my dinner with Andre in a long time, but I remember thinking I would like the book to be a little bit like that movie, if at all possible. Bruce talks about this in his sections, how initially he really wanted to be the doctor and have the scientific voice and that I kept trying to move him over to the more personal and to talk about himself as a reader, talk about himself as a son, as a father, as a grandfather. I think one of the other stories that I didn't know was going to happen in the course of writing the book is the story of my friendship with Bruce and how our voices ended up harmonizing how as I was taking baby steps toward the neurology, he was taking bigger steps toward the humanities. And the idea was to try and get as close to the middle as we could. And I think that in the course of the book, you see that developing friendship, which honestly, there was so much about the book that surprised me how certain chapters were going to work. I had no idea I was going to write a chapter on behavior. I didn't want to. It was a really brutal chapter to write, but it was just a joy writing the book with Bruce. And I say this in the book, I spent a lot of time alone dealing with my father's illness and I didn't want to write about it alone. So it was definitely worth the wait to find Bruce to write it with me. And that crossover, I think, is evidence you read it, the crossover for you into science and for Bruce into storytelling. But also, it strikes me as that healing relationship yes. between the two of you. Toward the end, I think that's very striking. I did want to touch on, and I think you bring this up, I think Bruce is trying to help you understand how different things are now, 40 years on, compared to when your dad was first diagnosed. And I think you and I have had this conversation. <laughs> I would have been in the United States at that time, and I, I was reflecting you know, when I'm reading the book about where we were at, where our thinking was in terms of the diagnosis and the management of dementia at the time and how far behind we are. I think we've come a long way on the journey, but obviously we've a long way to go. But any reflections on that? I mean, in terms of what you saw, let's say, in UCSF as part of QBHI now, mm-hmm. let's say in the last couple of years, and then maybe what you experienced as a 25-year-old, 26-year-old going through that journey with your father in terms of yeah. care and, and the diagnosis. Just to go back to an earlier point you made about the healing process, and I say this at some point in the book, that Bruce was the doctor we didn't have. It was amazing being able to ask Bruce all the questions that my family and I were incapable of asking in the 1980s, and I don't think the doctors would have had good answers anyway, to be perfectly honest. The science was just so young, and people just didn't understand like they do now. 
What was so amazing, I think, about being at UCSF and seeing how the diagnosis was made and how it was delivered, first, an interdisciplinary team. That just seemed like such an important aspect to the whole process, both for understanding the disease and for the family, that there was this really intense support structure. So you not only have the neurologist, but you have a psychiatrist, you have a geriatrician, you have incredible support structures in terms of nurses, support groups. I think UCSF and Trinity too, probably the gold standard in terms of how these diagnoses should be made and delivered. And just the kindness and the willingness to answer any question that the family would have. And also telling families this really difficult news in an empathic way, but in a way that was both realistic and hopeful. I loved that. And that could not have been more different than when my father was diagnosed in the 80s. There's just been so much research in terms of the power of music to access parts of the brain where the language networks are being damaged. The networks that can hold on to music are still alive and well. This might sound like a small thing. If we had been able to bring a dog to where my father was, we had a little dog when I was growing up. I think that would have been hugely helpful for my dad. He always loved pets, but that was never an option. And also the idea that the caregiver needs a huge amount of support. My mom was just left on her own. So there's just been so much progress in terms of care. I think there's an understanding now that certain medications are really not to be used. My father, I describe him as big pharma's dream come true. He was just loaded with medicine. I don't think it was malevolent. I think that just people didn't know what to do. So less medicine, no restraints, unless absolutely necessary. There are some really painful memories I have of my father's care, which was the opposite of care. So I think things have really progressed since the 80s. Thank God. I think that's articulated really well in the book in terms of the compare and contrast. Just a couple of questions before we finish, and it really relates a little bit to what you were touching on there about creativity. This book, it was a creative process and it was a creative product. Creativity is creative, something new and something valuable. You described how the book has been very valuable to you, I think, in terms of processing things. Valuable to others. I think you've touched on that. I mean, do you see this book as being valuable to others? The novelty, I think we've talked about because it is novel, because it's different in terms of we don't describe the structure and also what happens in the book between you and Bruce. But valuable to others. How do you see this as being valuable to others? It's interesting. We really had a struggle to find a publisher for the book because it didn't fit into any particular genre. How is Amazon going to advertise it? (laughs) And at a certain point, I thought, I'm just going to write this thing. And if no one reads it, I'm really sorry about that, but I'm not sure we're going to be able to find a publisher for it. And then as good luck would have it, we did. And what I realized as I started sharing chapters of the book and as the book came out, that this story about me, a woman from New Jersey, Jewish, middle class, 
I didn't know if it would resonate and it has. And I remember when I was applying for an Alzheimer's Association grant, I had to squish my creative project into the language of learning outcomes and benchmarks. And it was so hard, but thank goodness the Alzheimer's Association took a chance and funded it. So that was great. But I remember for me, like, how do you know that your experiment will be a success? And my glib answer was, well, if one person is helped by the book, it'll have been a success. Of course, I couldn't write that in the proposal, but that's what I thought. And I have gotten emails from people saying, thank you for writing this book. It's really helped me. And I have a parent with this disease, and I really appreciate your being so honest about your guilt and the pain and the regret and things you wish you had done, things you couldn't have done, et cetera, et cetera. And so I have confidence now that it's doing what we wanted it to do. And that's worth everything. It is creative. It's new. It is valuable to you. But also, I really agree with you. I think it's valuable to others. I'm also thinking, when I read it the day, the value to medical students, uh, students in knowledge is kind for you to be able to look at the storytelling and the science in the one volume and it's a fantastic learning experience as well. I would just add to that, Brian, that I would hope if doctors read it, that one of their takeaways would be to ask the family for a story and that that could be like a first, I don't know, I don't want to tell doctors how to do it, but at some point in the meeting, and I think earlier is better because it sets the stage for empathy and communication. And I want to hear your story because even though I see so many patients with dementia, every story is different and unique. And I want to honor that. And so the power of a family getting to tell the doctor a story, I think is really significant. I think that's really good advice for the doctor. And doctors do need advice and they do need help in this. And I think doctors do also need to find the right words and talking to families and to people with dementia. So my final question to you is to end on a really positive note. What advice or hope would you offer to a sister, a brother, a daughter, a son mm-hmm. been through this? Any words of wisdom that you would offer to them now? I wrote this book that's mostly about words. And I've come out the other side thinking that there's a whole lot more than words. When you are faced with someone you love who has dementia, And that's where music comes in and doggies and cats come in and the power of touch to cut through some of the noise. Now, sometimes it doesn't work if the person's so upset about something, you need to respect the space, what have you. I think words may be a little overrated in my own mind. And GBHI taught me that too. There were people in my group who were working on the power of dance with respect to people with dementia. There was another person who was in Trinity who was working on clowning in the context of dementia. Because if you're a clown, you can't make a mistake. (laughs) And I remember thinking, clowning? That's so bizarre, but so creative. I would advise people just to open themselves up to these possibilities that are beyond language as a way to communicate. Also, for me, I wasn't my father's caregiver. I was 
collateral damage, as it were. I tried to care for him when I could be with him, but writing, if you like to write, I think writing is really good. I'm so glad I wrote letters to my father, even though he couldn't read them. They're like the most precious things for me. But if you wanted to keep a journal, forcing yourself to put the sad stuff on the page, it both distances you a little bit from it, but it also doesn't let you forget. And what I would advise most of all is just to let yourself feel. No matter how much it hurts, it's better to feel it when it's happening than bank it. (laughs) And then all the feeling comes at a certain point. And believe me, it's disastrous. (laughs) I don't know if that's positive, but... I think what I'm hearing you saying is that creativity and the creative process can heal. And I think that's what's been healing for you. You give so many examples of how creativity can enhance life for people with dementia. But certainly your creativity and the work that you did with Bruce Miller on this book, I think, was very healing and is so important and useful, not just for you, but I think for everybody. And it's just wonderful to hear your story. Your story is so important. Your voice is really is wonderful to talk to you, Cindy. And thank you so much. Thank you, Brian.